Let's pray. You're a beautiful, beautiful Savior. You never give up on us. You're faithful. Your mercy endures forever. Jesus, you're the perfect embodiment of all that's good in God. Came as a man and suffered. You didn't deserve it. And out of this amazing love, far beyond our comprehension, you went to the cross, sacrificed your life, died for our sins, but rose again to give us life anew through the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify you, Lord. And I pray for each man here that we take hold of, we apprehend every goodness that you've offered us. You have store of blessings you want to give us. The most important is a deep and intimate relationship with you. And we have to be as lowly as you are. That's where you are. We can't meet you up here. We have to meet you down where you are. That doesn't make sense to us. We're proud and rebellious people. But you're faithful, Lord, and we pray that you will continue to have your way in our lives. We want you to get every bit of the glory you deserve. You're so, so worth it. In your name, amen. So a couple little housekeeping things just to talk about. We will not be having service here next Wednesday. Instead, next Friday, that's March 8th, there will be a Friday night prayer and worship service. Right, Pastor? Okay, just confirming. So also this Saturday we'll have a um, work day for those who are able to. Um, some of you can't make it. I know some of you have helped up on Monday. So if those can't make it on Saturday and are interested in working on Monday to do some tasks, um, reach out to Ken and he'll give you some assigned things to do. Um, lastly, I want to bring something as a point of clarification. Can you lower me down a little bit, Jeremy? I'm still seeing I'm a little hot. Thanks. Um, we are so richly blessed here that we have men who are passionately seeking the Lord and help one another. This is a body that we are continually trying to spur one another on to good deeds, speaking words to build each other up according to our needs. And everybody wants to be so diplomatic about it and not create offense, but I really cherish and appreciate um, Brother Glenn talking to me, and I want to bring a one point of clarification from last week. Even though he said I didn't need to, I, I need to. I said that angels are timeless, and I want to clarify it. They are eternal, but they're not timeless in the sense of the way that the Lord is. God alone is the only one who's truly timeless. He's the only one who's not bound by time. And even after, when we're in eternity we're with him, we'll still be under time. We'll be eternal, but because we're continually growing and learning, any being that continually grows and learns is in a state of becoming, in process, has to be under time. Does that make sense? 
Only God is completely self-sufficient and self-contained. Okay, He is changeless. He does not change. He's the same as we say yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is true, eternal, and He's the only being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, only being who is outside of time. So when I said the word timeless, I misspoke. Okay, only God is truly without time. Okay, when we talked about last week, we talked about angels' desire. So if you have desires to learn, you want to figure things out, which is what we want to and will get to. I mean, truly, we'll have a time in eternity. We'll be eternal, but still under the construct of time. It may not be the same way that we think it is. Like, it may not be 24 hours a day. It may be a different sense of what that is. We don't know. But the point is, we'll still get to grow. We'll still get to learn. Okay? It will still be, and we'll have works to do. Okay? To talk about us judging angels, there's going to be tasks to do. Kind of makes you wonder, like, what is going to be out there? So it's going to be a much greater adventure. Okay? Because we'll be right there with Jesus in the light of his glory, lighting our way through that. Okay? And you see how magnificent this solar system this galaxy is, okay, the universe is. Every time we look, we find it's just greater and more magnificent than we can imagine. And not just a little bit, a little bit bigger. It's not like 20% greater than we think. It's on orders of magnitude greater, okay? And we don't even understand all the dimensions of reality, okay, and what we can perceive. And that's, God has done that for our benefit to show you that he is that much greater and that much more magnificent. All, again, to show us in the glory that he has extended to us and everything that he's done for us to show you how such a majestic being, such a God truly of love, okay? We see through it dimly now, and we'll get a much better grasp of how that is, okay? So you have confidence. The God who created all that is the only truly timeless, unchanging being, that being said, let's now move on to the second chapter of 1 Peter. And we're going to start with the first three verses. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, the New King James used the word evil speaking. Other translations use the word slander. And in some respects, that might be a better word because that's what the Greek's actually referring to. I mean, the evil speaking can encompass a lot more. Okay, it is specifically talking about slander, but all those things, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. And then he contrasts that being with newborn babes. Okay, newborn babies have none of those. Okay? They have none of those things. They don't know how to deceive. They don't know how to be envious. Okay? Doesn't take long for that to show up. Okay? Within a couple of years it can show up. Okay? But when they're newborn, they don't have that. Okay? They don't have any of those things, right? And what's, what's the only thing that newborn babies want? What do they do? They cry because they want uh, what? They want to feed, right? Number one, they feed, they poop, or they want to sleep. That's what they're crying about. Okay? But they basically want, they're hungry, they desire. And when a baby wants milk, it lets you know right away, incessantly, 
okay? And it desires what? Mom's milk. It desires the best milk it can have, okay? And what Peter is telling us is that's our attitude. When we're newborn in Christ, when we're born again, we are a newborn creature in Christ. So we are a babe in Christ. Our hunger and passion should be for the Word of God. And, it, and the thing is, that passion should not subside. Praise God, I had that when I first came to faith. I, I mean, I just read hours and hours a day. Okay? And I invite you again, the more, if you want to check to see how you're doing spiritually, it's really going to be against this measurement. How much do you want to desire the pure milk, the Word of God? What's your hunger to spend time with God through His Word? Yes, do, do it in prayer. Yes, praise songs and worship. But especially, especially desire the Word of God, okay? And that, Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul, well, so pants my soul for you, right? And so the Greek word for that is epipotheo, which means ardent on fire. So when you desire somebody, you just like relentless, okay? You're like a stalker for the word, if you want to use that word. You just can't not get by without it. So that's what he's, Paul, Peter talks about, right? And there's a few points he mentions with that. And Andrew Murray says this really well, okay? The first point, he says, you must know that you're God's children. Second point is this word teaches you is what this word teaches you is that, number one, you're still very weak. Newborns can't do very much. They're very weak, right? Weak as a newborn child, completely dependent. They can't do anything on their own. Can't do a single thing. The third thing he says, okay, is that as a young Christian, you must not remain weak, okay? The whole point of a baby is to get the milk so they can become strong, so they can grow, okay? So yes, you're weak, seeing your neediness, but you don't remain weak. You're continually growing in the word, okay? And every time you eat it, you get more sustenance, you grow stronger and bigger and stronger. And we see that with the babies right before our eyes here. Okay, And the fourth and principal lesson, Andrew Murray says, is the lesson which young disciples of Christ have the most need is, is that through the milk of the word that God's newborn infants can grow. Meaning, that's really, apart from the word of God, we cannot grow. You don't grow through spiritual worship. I mean, I'm changed by it, I appreciate it. But the growth is through the word of God. Everything leads you back to God. Everything leads you back to the word, to understand the word, to apprehend the word. So the idea of worship is that when we tie it in, it just brings back in good worship, good hymns, they connect you to who God is through his word. And so look at the word when you're spending time. So as the deer panted for the water, so my soul longeth after you, right? So continually when you look at the Psalms, they were designed for the word to have us glorify God to seek him, to spend time in his word. Okay, moving on to the next two verses. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, Peter, right, was called Simon, named Peter, which is, means the stone, the rock. And he talks about we're living stones. Okay? So, one stone by itself does very little. What we become is we become a living stone together, built together, like brick by brick, okay, to represent Christ. Everything they talk about in terms of building, okay, on the foundation, I want you to get this. When you're a living stone, you're not in isolation. One stone that's off by itself really has nothing. It's when it's built together with the other ones, it forms a wall, forms a building, okay? It becomes part of the foundation. So that's one of the points of living stone that I want you to get, okay? The other part that I want you to get, most importantly, by being a living stone, okay, men may reject you, but God does not reject you. He deems you as precious, okay? And the word precious is entimos, chosen, okay? That same word of precious is what the centurion thought his servant. His servant was precious to him. The same Greek word is used. And that's why he came to Jesus wanting healing. It's something you treasure, you esteem, you value. So when you're chosen and precious to God, you're valued by God. That's also, and that value, that means it's his life that speaks through you. Okay, so when we look at what acceptable, built up a spiritual house, a holy priest, to offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices, what can that look like? Turn to Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So an acceptable sacrifice is, of course, your body. So he says, acceptable sacrifice, that means sacrificing your body. Looking at the next verse in Hebrews 13, 15, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So another acceptable sacrifice is a grateful heart that's thanking and praising God. When you're praising him and thanking, especially when you don't like what you're going through. Especially when you're bored or disconnected. Especially when you're unhappy and things are not going your way. That's an acceptable sacrifice because that shows an amazing trust in the Lord and his goodness. Not looking at the waves, but your eyes fixed on Jesus. Moving to the next verse in Hebrews 13, 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And in Philippians 4, 18, it expounds on this. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet 
smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So the love that you show to others, that's what Paul's talking about. The, the heart that shows love to others is an acceptable sacrifice. As the love of Christ, motivated by the Holy Spirit, it becomes this sweet, smelling, smelling aroma. So we talk about your bodies, that means your life. Your heart, that means your praise and your thanksgivings, right? And your hands, your service that you do, and the things that you do, all motivated by a relationship with Christ. So what are the sacrifices that he wants? When I also talk about a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. It's, it's, it's really driven by an understanding of who we are. Okay, so let's go to 1 Peter 2, verses 6 to 8. Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will not will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they, were also, they, to which they also were appointed. Okay, so he's reading here from Isaiah. Right? And so, I want you to understand here, part of the thing that you're talking about is Peter's talking both from Isaiah and also from Psalm 118. Okay? The point that he talks about here from Psalm 118 is a chief cornerstone, Psalm 118.22, right? So Jesus is that foundation stone, the cornerstone. If you know those of you who've done any kind of masonry work or any kind of building the first most important stone you need to lay down is your cornerstone. The beginning cornerstone determines everywhere everything else goes. You've measured everything. Once you do that, everything follows from the basis of that stone. And if that is not laid properly, then everything else is askew. Everything else is off. So Jesus says he's the chief cornerstone. But you also have to appreciate with the analogy of stone. What kind of stone is Jesus? In Isaiah 8, 14, he's a stumbling stone. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house, houses of Israel and as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's also, in Isaiah 28, 16, the foundation stone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And what we're going to see in time is in Daniel chapter 2, verses 35, and then 44 and 45, he is a supernatural stone. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In verse 44, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Insomuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So this is part of Daniel's great thing that he saw when he talked about the great statue, okay? So if you remember that in the statue, he told King Nebuchadnezzar, okay, the head of gold, the breastplate that was of, of the silver, referring to the Medes and the Persian. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, was the head of gold. And then the, 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 the waist that was of bronze, referring to the Hellenistic, the Greek empire. And then later, with the, what we're seeing with the Roman empire and what we're seeing now, and all of that will be crushed by this huge stone. All throughout scripture, you'll get the sense that Jesus is the stone or the rock. We talk him as the rock of our salvation. He's our firm foundation. In all things, everything, you see that analogy of stone, take consolation. God is our stone, okay? It has two things that are really important. One, if you're standing on the stone, your footing is sure. Right? If you're built on the rock, the house is built on the rock, your footing is sure. If you're standing in the sand, if you're not on the stone, your footing is insecure. But the second thing is that stone will be also a stone of judgment. Okay? And we'll talk about that. One last thing about the stone that I mentioned is it's also the rock that miraculously gave Israel water in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. And all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Notice before when I talked about precious, again, Peter emphasizes precious, uses that same word, entimo, something that's really valuable to him. We are that valuable. Jesus is valuable, and as Jesus is valuable to us, the more valuable he is to us, the more joy and freedom we'll have. So how is, Jesus, how is Christ precious? He's precious, I love what Dave Guzik says, precious intrinsically. Just who he is. He is precious positively. Precious comparatively. That means compared to everything else, nothing is greater than him. He is the pearl of great value. He is precious superlatively. That means greater than anything else out there. And especially for us, he is precious suitably. That means he's there to meet every single one of our needs. There's no need that we have that he cannot meet. Let me say that again. There is no need that we have that he cannot meet. We may have wants that he will choose not to meet, but there's no need that he cannot meet. Okay, I want you to understand about what I talked about in terms of judgment. And I mentioned earlier about the, the joy and the goodness of God and the stone, and he's there as help, but I also want you to know that in that sense of judgment, he will be, it says, a stone of a rock of offense. Okay, so turn with me to, chap to Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 45. I'm going to read about the parable of the evil servants. Here another parable. There was a certain landover who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. 
Now, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the wine dressers that they may receive its fruit. And that would be like grapes. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and then stoned the other. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyards comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They, referring to the Pharisees, said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him their fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken over from you, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever, whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And he was. But I want you to go back a couple of verses. Actually, one verse, verse 44. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Each of us will have to deal with the stone that is Christ. Every single human being. And either we are broken before him on our own will, humbled as low as he is because he's the lowliest of low. And either we're broken by that stone, falling upon the stone. And when you fall upon a hard surface, I've fallen, I break, we break. But here we're talking breaking in our, in our spirit and our soul as we're humbled before him. And if we're not broken before Christ, those who are not, they will be crushed. There will be judgment. So when we look out, we can see that it, God is love and he's merciful, but he's also just and holy and righteous in ways we do not appreciate, we do not respect, we take for granted. And Peter's saying, yes, he's love. He does not want any to perish, but he's also so so holy and pure and that he wants not because he wants to hammer you not because he's mean he's given away he's become so low he says here you have to deal with it humble yourself and if you if you're humbling yourself want to humble yourself god will be there to help you he desires that but if those who decide to reject the message they will be crushed they will be part of that kingdom that will be crushed by that stone cut out of the mountain as daniel prophesied We'll all have to deal with that. And those that we know, so you have to look at the people that we know, our extended biological family, okay? The people we work with, the people we see on the streets, the cashier at the grocery store, people that we see, they will either be broken before God or crushed if they don't repent. And so what's happening, the time is drawing nigh pastor talks about what's happening 
you know, we all talk about being in the end times. I don't know what that looks like. But things are changing and seems that things are accelerating. And as they do, we need to be prepared and we need to be even more uh, conformed to Christ. And so craving that milk of that word, but then in Corinthians, you know, Paul talks about not just on milk, but eating meat. So the idea, you want that baby to have milk, okay, but eventually, you know, around six months of age, we start to give them like baby food. And then we start to advance to meat. If you see somebody who's 20 years old and they're still drinking mother's milk, you realize that's a problem. That's a problem. What's the term now, like adult adolescence, where these kids are like well into their 20s and living a, at home with mom and dad and basically unemployed and can't really take care of themselves? Used to be 13, if you look at those who have a bar mitzvah for guys or bat mitzvah for girls, that was the age when they were adults. 13, you were an adult. A lot of cultures, you're earlier. Messiah, you're 15 or 16. The Native Americans, you're around that same age, early age, you're becoming adults. Okay? Used to be 18, was that it? That's when you could go, and you could certainly go to the war and fight, though there's some who even lied and went in earlier when they were younger than that. Stepping to the role of adults, what we have now is a culture where people are not, unfortunately, unwilling to accept that. We are called to mature, to grow, to become strong in the word. Okay. Moving on to verses 9 and 10. So Paul says that, and he counts that sense of the judgment, but he says the same word again, right? Precious and chosen, and now he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, and that you that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So Peter, who was the apostle to the Jews, is basically saying, as I've shared last week, he's now extending, realizing that that stone, okay, that judgment, as we just read about the vine dressers, right? He told the Pharisees, Jesus said himself, if you don't do the honor, God's gonna bring others in, and we are those other tenants to the land. We have been called in, we've been grafted into the vine by God's mercy, which he had planned from the beginning. Right? Jesus had died before the foundation of the earth. This was all planned. God knew that. He knows our frame better than we do. This was his plan at the beginning to allow the Gentiles to come in. Peter recognized that, okay? And Peter recognized that the, uh, the Gentiles are now in. We are now that priesthood. As he had a consecrated people, okay, with the Levites that decided, well, in a sense, we're all Levites, we're his holy people, chosen, chosen by God. So some use that as an indication of predestined. The form is predestined. What's going to happen is predestined. To be conformed to Christ is definitely predestined. Within that part, do we have any choice? Um, that's where there's controversy about it, but we really believe that we do. The nature of that choice, being in the nature of God, he confers that and gives us freedom to choose. 
Because that choice of that love is what he wants. And the thing of that choice is it's not, doesn't stop there at the point of salvation. It's a choice we have each and every day, whether this is the day we're gonna serve the Lord, whether this is the day that we're gonna take a hold of what God's given us. We are that chosen generation. Are we gonna walk in what we have in the commissioning that God has given us? And that's what Paul, Peter's talking about. Okay, we're not his people, right? If you read in the book of Hosea, okay, he talks about you're not my people, I make my people. It's God's mercy. Nothing that we did to deserve to become God's people. Let me say that again. There's nothing we've done to deserve to be his people. We have nothing to merit ourselves. Nothing to boast about. Nothing to say, eh, we got the the stuff. We don't have the stuff. God has all the stuff. He continues and still has all the stuff. Being a believer does not make us any better than those who are not believers. We're just saved by the grace of God. Now, out of that gratitude that we have for being saved, out of the fact that we're chosen people, out of the fact that because we're now desire, we're precious to God, and we have that desire that we want to be like him, we'll grow in the world, he will conform us to the image of Christ and make us something that we were not. So, you know, people use the word, God loves me as I am. No, in truth, he loves you in spite of who we are because of who he is, okay? And he loves you not to keep you as you are, but rather to conform you to the image of Christ. That's the kind of God we have. So when Pastor was talking about some of that theology, there's a lot of stuff we're gonna see. And when we talked about the pure milk, okay, I heard this, uh, Tony Evans actually used this analogy, which is kind of good. You know, you get an apple and it's healthy and it's good for you. But a lot of people like it, I don't. But you know, go to the fairs and they, they candy the apple. You know, they put all that stuff on it and you get a candy apple and you can eat that. And that thing is like diabetic sweet. I don't care for it, but some people do. But something that was nutritious and good becomes something that's sweet, superficial, and no longer healthy. Okay? It's no longer pure. Some things can become adulterated, becomes corrupted. And we have to be sensitive that what's going to happen, there are going to be things that we're going to encounter that will be corrupted. It will, you'll see a form of it. You'll see the apple. You'll see a form of it, but it won't be pure. We need discernment, and we need each other to figure that part out. We will not get it on our own we can easily be deceived. So just something to be mindful about. Um, and this chosen generation, I'm going to read a story. And this is a story, if you know Billy Sunday, um, yeah, let me tell you, in this town of Winona Lake, Indiana, is the home of the famous Major League Baseball player and evangelist Billy Sunday. And his wife, Nell, affectionately known as Ma Sunday. One evening, Ma was working on some correspondence when she heard Billy's voice. He said, I'm getting dizzy, Ma. She turned to look at him, and he slumped over and was gone. She screamed and called the doctor who pronounced Billy dead from a heart attack. But as soon as the doctor left the house, Ma Sunday went into the bedroom, closed the door, turned the key, and knelt at the foot of the bed. She put her head on Billy's forearm as he lay there dead, and she said, Lord, If there's anything left in the world for me to do, if you let me know about it, I want to promise you that I will do it the best I know how. In her grief, she couldn't imagine that there was anything left for her to do. She and Billy had always been a team. For 47 years, they had lived together, and for 
39 years, they had traveled the world together in a ministry of preaching and evangelism. She felt her usefulness for the kingdom was over. But at the end of the week, two men from New York State who had come to Winona Lake, that's in Indiana, for the funeral, asked to see her. They wanted to know if she would come and speak in their area. Her first reaction was resentment. She almost said, no, you've no business asking me now. Billy isn't even buried yet. But before she could speak, a message flashed in her mind that God was answering her prayer. Lord, if there's anything left in the world for me to do, if you let me know about it, I promise you I'll do it. So she accepted. And she traveled to Buffalo the next week. She thought about what she would say, and she titled her message, Things I'm Thankful For. That was the beginning of a long life as a single and as a widow of declaring the praises of him who called her out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So it's a question we have to ask. Is that our prayer? Lord, if there's anything in this world you want me to do, if you'll show me what it is, I'll do it. I'll do it. He's taken us out of darkness into marvelous light. Why do we live here? Are we here for ourselves? Are we here because circumstances go what I want? This wasn't my plan. I can relate. My wife died 16 years ago. This is not, you know, people talk about plan B. If you told me 16 years ago I'd be standing up here at Lighthouse in Dry Ridge, Kentucky talking about it, that would not be on my radar. It's not my plan. But looking back, I can see how God wove everything together to get me to the point of my need, my need for him, my need for him in a community of believers who are willing to passionately seek him. I can't be half-hearted. We had great worship Sunday. I love the worship. I love the worship tonight. And I shared with pastor how much I could do this every day. My daughter went to Los Angeles and she talked about, she got tickets to go to the, the Lakers basketball game because she wanted to go. And I realized, you know, I have no desire to do that. Praise God, that's a change that he's done. No desire whatsoever. People gave me the tickets. I don't know if you give a choice. Do we have a chance to get together with believers and worshiping God or go to a Lakers game? I'd probably choose the worship. I really would. Ask me five years ago, I, probably, I don't know if I would have done it. Certainly not 10 years ago. The point is God's growing us. He's growing us to love him more. To love, and so when we're worshiping, I fall in love with him like all over again. And when you have your first love, you love things, you want to fall in love with Jesus every day, all over again. And out of that, you'll want to serve. Out of that love. And that's what they talk about. Now, when we come to Christ, he becomes our cornerstone. And if he becomes our cornerstone, we are his construction project. And if we're his construction project, we have a divine purpose. And so the last part is this, that we're going to go to the next verses. And if we have a divine purpose, we should live accordingly. So moving to verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having, con having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. So we're in this war. 
So we want to do good. Paul talks about that. I desire to do good. What's in me, there's sin within me. Okay? So there's a battle every day. There is a battle every day. I'm battling to do the message. I can't go through a week when I share here without a battle. And every time in that battle, it requires a couple of things. It requires me to put off the old man and put on the new. Every day we're confronted with that. The old man doesn't go away. I really wish he did. I really wish he did. He's an aggravation. I don't like him. I actually hate him. And the more, each day I hate him more and more. Okay? But he's there. Okay? And because he's there, he shows me my need. My need for a savior every day. Every day I need Jesus. And the more I have Jesus, the more I'm willing to surrender, the more he's going to change. And so that means in that war, we have to put off the old man and put on the new. We have to abstain from fleshly lusts. Remember I talked earlier about choice? We're chosen, but we have choice. We have the choice whether to abstain from the fleshly lusts or to indulge in it. Every day there's that war. Do I do that or not? Every day we're confronted with that, and we have to decide and choose. Now the good news is, you could have screwed up yesterday and you chose frosty lust. His mercies are new every day. Today, he gives you a new day to do something new. Tomorrow, he gives us a new day. Okay? So Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. That's the choice before us. But the reason why we want to do that is not just for ourselves to be like Christ, but also it's a witness of who you are to others. I was reading somewhere, and this was actually by John MacArthur, and he talked about how one of his um, elders was a, a lawyer and invited this other lawyer to come. And the guy refused, and he kept inviting him, come on to my church, and he refused. And he goes, I will never go to that church because you have one of the most corrupt lawyers who go to your church. And so from the pulpit, MacArthur said, whoever you are, stop it, you're killing our witness. And the point is, your, what you do, you here, we are each representatives of Christ. We're also representatives of the lighthouse. People's view of lighthouse isn't going to be just based on Pastor Jeff. It'll be based on each one of us. Okay? For good or ill. He goes to lighthouse? Really? She goes to lighthouse? Well, I don't know if I want to go there. Okay? So I'm not trying to make it legalism. I'm not trying to get you bound by it. But I am saying... If your witness is a problem, that's one of the reasons we encourage you and spur one another on. We're going to encourage you because we want this place, we all grow together, we want this place to become holy. We want God's presence about us. We want people to grow in, in Christ. And if you're in rebellion, we're going to admonish you. That's what the word tells us to do. We don't admonish the unbelievers. We show them their need for repentance. But for the believers, we admonish them because you're representing you, but also all of us. Just like those of you in the family, you're, you know, we represent, we're all holding to one another, we hold into one another, okay? And so the intent is, by your good works, even though they see others, they go, okay, the good news is, the reverse is also true. So by the negative, they judge you and say, I don't want to go here, but by the positive, they're going, oh, you go to Lighthouse? Well, I know... David who goes to Lighthouse. Oh, yeah, I want to go there. Okay, I know Stephen goes there. I want to go there. Oh, all these people I've heard, they've also talked to me about it. So there's a positive witness or a negative witness. It goes both ways. 
But more importantly, it's your witness to Christ. What do they think about Jesus? Because they go, you know, that's what people use that quote about from Mahatma Gandhi. He says, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And that's what happened. That was his experience. Unfortunately, I don't think they were real Christians. I think a lot of people profess to be Christians. And that's what I'm seeing. A lot of people say the name. Culturally, it's become the custom here. I'm raised Christian. I go to church. My so-and-so is a deacon. My father was a deacon or whatever happened. The vast majority of the people in the churches in America, even if they're faithful attender, are not believers. It's hard because they're not living their life for Christ. They want their get-out-of-jail-free card and they're living lives for themselves, making the choice for themselves. They don't have Christ as Lord. The good news is it's becoming increasingly hard to put that kind of name. It's getting uncomfortable to become a Christian. So as our nation becomes less Christian, culturally Christian, not cool to become Christian, certainly there's an agenda to move Judeo-Christian values out of our whole foundation of interaction, then it's no longer cool to become Christian, then if you're Christian, you're going to be kind of looked down on. So most people will just decide not to. And that's what's happening with the latest generation. And because of that, those who do will more likely be real. Because they're gonna have, there's a penalty, there's a price to pay to be a believer. There's supposed to be a price to pay to be a believer. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be comfortable. Okay, let's move on to 13 to 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, or as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now what a strong thing to say. When you're being persecuted by the authorities at that time, when you're being persecuted in Rome, written here, like I said, in the early 60s, okay, AD, you're seeing, you're saying, hey, honor the government. The same government that may be persecuted, honor them. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 13, right? About verses 1 to 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, all to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so Peter talks about this as well, that we're obligated to honor the authorities. 
right? That means paying taxes. That means call to duty. That means abiding by the laws of the land. When do we not do that, though? The only time we don't do it is when it goes against the clear conviction of what the Word says. Okay? And you see that in Acts chapter 4. Um... Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. So if it's a choice and the government says you can't preach about the good news of Christ, you can't speak about the truth of the word, we may have to stand up against injustice that way. Anything that against the glory of God or the truth of his word, that's the only time we in the government are to disagree on. Okay? And we're to disagree. Okay? So they say you can't speak and you go, yeah, I have to speak. You can't show the good news. Yeah, I have to. I have to. You know, it's happening in India right now. You know, anti-conversion laws, commonly used. They happen in the Muslim country. Pakistan did that, but now India's even doing it because they don't want people to convert, but they think it's forced conversion. There's no forced conversion, okay? It's, it's antithetical to Christianity. You can't do forced conversion because you can't be a believer forcibly. It's against the foundation of faith. Anybody converts based on that isn't a real believer. But that's what's happening. And so you, you're having these, you may have to suffer. And if you do, you're getting beaten. Your homes are being taken off or, or basically burned. Churches are being burned in India right now. It's getting harder and harder. In all these countries, China as well, so when the countries do well and they start to prosper, they say they don't need you anymore. They don't need the West. They don't need the power of the West. And so... It's basically going, you know, basically saying, I don't need you. I don't need what you have or what you can give. I can get by without you. They don't even want the help the same way. You think your country needs the help. They want to give that help. The whole world is moving against, away from Judeo-Christian value system. Okay? You can see that trend. And there's, there's something going on here on a level that we don't understand. God knows. And... We can feel insecure and we can feel we don't understand and we can get frustrated and angry and you can read different things in the media that make you more angry and frustrated. But don't be. God knows. He's still sovereign. He created the universe. It's no surprise to him. This is within his plan. Okay? And so in that time, he's going to work everything out to good for those who love him and call according to his purpose. And that is making us more like Christ. So in the midst of that, that's what he wants to do. Are we going to choose to get frustrated, irritated, and bothered? Or are we going to choose to go deeper and closer to God? Pressing in more to him, trusting him more in the midst of it. Okay. Verses 18 to 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it? If when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And so they use the word here where masters are harsh. But the Greek word is axiskolios. And they use the word that I like better in Luke 3, 5. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough way smooth. So the same scolios word means crooked. Okay? So that word, when they say harsh, can be interpreted crooked, deceitful. 
He's not tough, but he's deceitful. He lied. I got punished. He lied. That lied. That's not fair. And Peter is saying, just as Paul did, if you suffer for doing good, you're giving God praise. If you do wrong and you get punished, you screw up and you get punished, like that's no big deal. You deserve to be punished. But if you do the right thing and you get punished, God gets more glory. Wow, that kind of that's hard. But if you do the right thing and get punished, God gets more glory. And that's what Peter wants us to do, is when you have those employers, and we can substitute for masters to use employers, and I'm not going to get in the whole issue of slavery at this time. Sometimes if we go through the book of Philemon, then we can talk about that and give you the whole history behind it. But um, the principle is, is, what does it mean to patiently endure unjust suffering? That's what's happening in India with the pastors. That's what's happening in Mexico with the pastors in the rural villages. What's happening in the underground church in China. What's happening to Christians throughout the ages in the past and happening at least as much now. Most Christians who are passionate are suffering for the name of Christ unjustly. And the question is, are we willing? We have to get stronger so we can persevere because that may indeed be coming our way. Moving on to the last four verses, five verses, 21 to 25. For, this, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, and you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. So Peter ends the chapter with these verses, basically saying everything that we do Everything that he's doing is continually conforming us to the image of Christ. You know, when I used to read this, I thought, well, okay, that's intense. I don't know if that's really for me. Jesus kind of went through that, but it was like this separation because I could not relate to that. But I bet you the believers in China and India are relating to that. Bet you believers throughout the history have been martyred for the word can relate to that. And the point that I want us to get is be prepared. When that comes, we need to be able to connect with. And so when we pray for missions, when we pray for people around the world, we're people who are suffering unjustly. So every time you have something that you think, both, when you get blessed for something that you didn't deserve, think about others who are not as blessed and pray for them. And when you suffer unjustly, when you get taken to task for something you didn't do wrong, or especially when you get taken to task for something you did right, you did the right thing and got punished. Praise God. And think of those that you now have the fellowship of suffering with, both with Christ and believers around the world who do that. And what did I say last week that we're supposed to do when we have suffering? Rejoice what kind, how? Exuberantly, exceedingly. What does that look like? That means, yes, 
I'm suffering for Jesus. That is counterintuitive. It's not going to seem natural. It's going to seem weird. But it will testify to the goodness of God and your true belief in him and the future you have with Christ in heaven. Because you know this is, we are sojourners and pilgrims here. We are here but for a season for a time. And while we will not be timeless, we will be in eternity with him, praising him. Just like we praise now, we're going to be praising him like, wow, over the top. You talk about praise music here, it doesn't hold a candle to the worship that we'll have there. doesn't hold a candle. And we'll be thinking, like, why, why didn't I worship him even more when I had the chance then? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being such a good God. And we ask that you have your way. You're such a good Father. And Father, I just pray for my brothers and myself that we become stronger and closer depending on you, Father, trusting you in all things. And pray that you get all the glory. You deserve it all. You're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.